The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And today I am going to bring a guest to you that is truly amazing. And I know I've said that hundreds of times, but this is a woman that is literally having a global impact. Her name is Mary Lou Jepson. Um, she's a PhD and she is the founder and CEO of a company called Open Water. She's also worked at companies you probably have heard of before, like Facebook and Google. She's done some amazing things, you know, the first of which is um, partnering with Nicholas Negroponte on the uh, the program called One Laptop Per Child, which you may remember from the uh, sort of 2008-ish time period. But what we focus on mostly today is her company called Open Water and what they're doing to help with uh, brain and neurological disorders and diseases, things like strokes, uh, glioblastoma, which is a really bad form of brain cancer, um, mental health, and what they're doing with the technology and making it accessible is equally incredible. So I would say, please, please take the time to listen to what she has to say. Uh, I also would implore you to watch her video on CNN from Life Itself which is how she and I reconnected recently. Uh, I mentioned it during the conversation, but if you do just Google life itself and then Mary Lou Jepsen, J-E-P-S-E-N, you will find her, but she's an incredible person. So please listen in and uh, I promise that you'll enjoy the time you spent. All right, well, Mary Lou, as we were talking about in our sort of pre-meeting here, I get to interview a lot of really cool, smart people that are changing the world, but I've been anticipating this one for about four years because if you remember, I met you at uh, David and Josh's Techonomy event and you were doing a talk, I think this was 2018, and you were talking about how a hat could basically change the face of healthcare because of the MRI technology that you were looking to achieve. Um, I reached out to you afterward. You said, not quite ready to have the conversation yet. So fast forward to, I think it was what, May, uh, we were both at the Life Itself Conference hosted by Mark Hodish and uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You were giving another talk and I would encourage people, and we can link to this, to go and watch your talk on CNN uh, because it just really digs into some of the technology and the details. But I want to get into what you're doing and how you're using modern technology, which has been assisted by Moore's Law, for anyone that knows that about uh, chips basically doubling in efficiency and speed every year. And I want to start by a little bit of uh, accolades, right? Because I think I knew this. Um, we're going to talk a lot about your MRI technology today in open water. But in 2008, you were named to a fairly prestigious list by this uh, publication that I think a lot of people know, um, even though we sort of have gotten away from physical publications. But Time Magazine uh, named you to their Time 100, which is a very, very prestigious list. And this was uh, for the One Laptop Per Child program. And you launched this with the MIT Media Lab founder, Nicholas Negroponte, which a lot of people probably know, in 2005, with the goal of building a $100 laptop. I, I could 
tell more, but I want to let you be involved in the conversation. Tell us a little bit more about this initiative and what got you started down this path. Well, I had been at Intel and I've been trying to do a low cost laptop and uh, finally gave up and 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 uh, headed to academia, giving up on ever making products because it was too <laughs> difficult, too frustrating, too many, um, too much headbanging against the wall and fighting. Um, and so uh, I ran into Nicholas on, in my last interview and we started basically um, the $100 Laptop Corporation uh, as part of my five minute interview that turned into three hours. And the idea is this. Um, great. We need a low cost laptop. At that time, laptops cost $2,000 and you needed another $2,000 worth of software on it to make it usable. But you could transform educational opportunities globally in the, in the least developed countries and the middle income countries, if you could just make a low cost laptop. I'm an electrical engineer by training, also a physicist and computer scientist, but my first degree was in electrical engineering. And um, yes, I had been at Intel where Gordon Moore um, came up with Moore's Law. And I thought, you know, why can't we do it? And the reason we couldn't do it wasn't the electronics cost. It was the screen technology. The most expensive component in a device is the screen. Indeed, now we call them the screens. And I was an expert in screen technology in particular. And I thought that I could use that to uh, design and architect a $100 laptop that could go globally. So with Nicholas, we started an organization called One Laptop Per Child. We made it a not-for-profit. It became a multi-billion dollar not-for-profit that transformed educational opportunities for children globally. It changed the equation of what a minister of education could do for the children of that country just through textbook costs, because you could throw the textbooks on the laptop and then not have to pay over five years for textbooks. That added up to $100 um, in, in, most in most sort of middle-income countries. And then they'd get the whole functionality of the laptop so it became the fastest growing consumer electronic category ever recorded. And as I said, a multi-billion dollar um, uh, revenue stream. And so at that point, I thought, what the hell am I doing at MIT? There are not enough MIT professors sleeping on the factory floors of the world. So I went back into product, but moved to Asia and started another startup. I had already done one startup as a pioneer in virtual reality and augmented reality, making a new kind of screen technology that enabled that and early smartphones and so forth in the 90s. But I, I moved back into that based on the impact and, and never looked back, left academia, have a great relationship with MIT, love them all. I just thought, go to where, we, go to where you're rare, where your talents are rare and you can have broader impact. So that's what I did. It's an amazing story, and I wanted to dig into that again, not only to give you your proper due, but I think for those listening in that don't have uh, Mary Lou Jepsen as sort of that name on the tip of their tongue, hopefully after this they do, because when you go big, you go really big, and that was one of them, right? So impacting something globally that was a huge problem and uh, begging for a solution one of the things that was interesting, though, in reading your 2008 Time 100 entry, I did discover, and this is a little bit of foreshadowing to the open water, I think it might be anyway, that um, in the mid-1990s, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor that had gone undetected for five years. So let's start with the 
what prompted you? Like, how did you discover it? And then I think people will start to put the pieces together and realize how this may have led to why you decided to start Open Water. Sure. Um, when I was 12, I ended up in the hospital for several months and in and out for a year with an unknown disease. And in fact, that was the start of the brain tumor that got diagnosed when I was 30. So all through my childhood, um, I was sick a lot with various symptoms. Medical imaging was really poor. Then diagnosis is, was really poor. Um, if you have five symptoms, 90% of the time it's 10 things, 10% of the time it's a million things and you never get diagnosed. This happens a lot to women and they get diagnosed with sort of these seronegative lupus, fibromyalgia, like on and on and on. And um, so I got all kinds of weirdo, you know, chronic Lyme disease, all kinds of different diagnoses, but it got really worse as I was doing my PhD in physics to the point where I was living in a wheelchair, sleeping 20 hours a day, body full of sores, couldn't move half of my face, sort of like, like you'd had Novocaine at the dentist, but all the time. So I drooled and you know, it was really awful. And then the worst thing happened. I couldn't subtract anymore. And so I didn't think I deserved a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school. So I dropped out and called up my parents, asked if I could um, go live in my, you know, childhood room. And at least I didn't have to share it with my sister anymore <laughs> um, and just die, you know, like, cause no one could diagnose me. I, I was at Brown university then they had a med school. They let me see the professors in the med school. I was getting the best care I could as in the mid nineties grad school healthcare system, but that didn't cover the cost of medical imaging of, of the high resolution medical imaging called MRI magnetic resonance imaging um, or CT scans. Um, and I had pretty severe headaches as well. And so on the way out, one of the professors said, you know, you said he had headaches. Let's, let's, I'll just pay for the scan. And so they found the brain tumor. I was thrilled. Everybody else I knew was mortified, but like when diagnosis, you can do treatment. So then I found a really great brain surgeon. Right. You finally had an answer, right? You had a place to go, at least which path well, to explore. Well, that took some effort, but I was, you know, like I, I could, I was a PhD, like Google was, well, no, Google wasn't there, um, but search was there. I think it was Alta Vista. I could find out a lot of information online. I found a terrific um, neurosurgeon that did nothing but the type of procedure I did. I didn't have to crack open my skull. They went up through my nose and <laughs> pulled it out. Boy, you know, you use a lot of Kleenex after that, but probably better than, you know, Elon Musk thinks he wants to do a one-inch hole in your skull. I'll tell you, as a, as a brain tumor survivor, it was the hardest thing I've ever done by far. Um, and it was very invasive, but um, I got to live. And since that time... I don't make, and this really sucks being the only <laughs> girl in, in the physics PhD program at the time. I don't make any hormones, like none. Like, you know, it's not just the sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, which I've experimented with because I don't make any. So what what is me? But, you know, adrenaline, thyroid, human growth hormone, cortisol, all of these are hormones. And without adrenaline, for example, you go into adrenal failure, you die. So every day, since September 1995, what close to 22 years, I've had to take about 14 different drugs a day or I die. So that's how I live. But, you know, luckily I'm an experimentalist at heart and I've learned a lot of neuroendocrinology as a means of self-preservation. And I've been able to design a better me, a me I like, because your hormones have a profound effect on 
how you feel um, and how you behave and <laughs> in really interesting ways. Because at that time, I thought, you know, it's pretty nerdy um, young woman. And I just thought it was all about the gray matter and the logic. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. So it's very interesting. I mean, for for a while, I um, tried the combinations that were typical of a, of, a, of a man my age. I was, I think, 29, 30. And I got it really wrong because I'd never been exposed to it. So it's sort of like, oh, I thought about sex constantly. I was angry all the time. I was positive. I was the smartest person in the entire world. I rank pretty high on smartness, but I try to be, you know, nice. Um, that was the niceness was gone. It was, it was fascinating. I couldn't handle it. I got off of it, but I got along with guys a lot better after that. And I think it's a really fascinating experience to know those behaviors are coming often from the same place of insecurity and sort of recognizing that. I don't know. I'm not a shrink. Probably shrinks probably know that automatically, but I did it by means of a chemical means that I needed to do to find out what was the right dose for me. And I found that and I, I like myself now. So I like myself better than I did in my twenties. Cause well, that's fascinating. And I didn't even imagine going down that path. So thank you for sharing that. That, um, adds a lot of uh, color. And I think just to know you and I don't know you that well, but we did have dinner with, you know, a group of friends Yeah, and, um, you just seem like you're such a, you know, just a normal average person, obviously very smart, very charming, but it's interesting to know that you've had to do all of this tinkering and you've done a great job getting to the best version of yourself. Um, I do want to fast forward to 2017 when you started this company called Open Water. And the thesis, I believe, is that you could change the game by improving neuro and brain diagnostics. Uh, you talked a little bit about this at life itself and the fact that you feel like it's been a resounding yes when you ask yourself the question, like, could you do this? And it looks like you're starting to really make a dent in this. We'll get more into the details, yeah. but um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the company and what, you know, prompted you to, to start it other than having some personal experience yourself. Yeah, I was sitting there. I was executive director of engineering at Oculus uh, and, and Facebook. And prior to that, I'd sort of had a similar role at Google, that, that company that I started after One Laptop Per Child got kind of bought by Google. And I got to report to one of the founders of Google, Sergey Brin, and help him start um, the Moonshot Lab and, and sort of really rethink advanced consumer electronics from the ground up from the physics of what we could do to skip multiple generations of product. And that's what I was doing at Facebook. And I, I looked at what was coming down the pike, what I had been able to fund with my rather large budget <laughs> at Google and then at Facebook and my colleagues at, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and so forth. And looking at what was coming down the pike, it was clear like every brain cell in consumer electronics almost was being used to create next generation LIDAR systems for autonomous vehicles. And then also next generation virtual reality and augmented reality systems, which I love, which is what it, really what I fell in love with as a teenager and holography and so forth. So but I, I looked at it and I'm like, wow, but nobody sees that maybe we could use the same thing to leapfrog the resolution of those medical imaging suites that we all go to when we're sick or our loved ones go to when we're sick in the hospital that are sort of like mainframe era computing from the 1950s, like the whole Silicon Valley thing not touch them. Nope. And um, they haven't changed size or cost since they saved my life in 1995. 
Could you imagine having to tote around? Remember what a cell phone was in 1995? It was this huge couple of bricks. I, like it seemed ridiculous to me. And obviously, the physics of the two-ton magnet were necessary for that modality. But I knew infrared light penetrates our body, sound penetrates our body. And my question was, could we modulate the phase, the waves and those wavelengths of light to get more information, which is really at its root what the discovery and invention of holography was. That's why it won the Nobel Prize. It was an information theory thing. And given the fact that what I knew was going to happen has happened, that we all have camera chips in our smartphones that cost a dollar, that have pixel sizes that are the size of the wavelength of light. And you know how many people use that feature? Zero. It seemed like such a shame to me because if you've got pixels the size of the wavelength of light, you can interfere waves and you can read information on them. If you imagine ocean waves, a sailor can read information on the ocean waves and know where the wind's coming from, know where land is, know where the fish are. And by looking at those wave patterns, we can extract a lot of information about what's going on inside. Infrared light penetrates our body. That's why, I mean, if we go back to really early inventions, the invention of fire was so key because we'd sit around a fire in, you know, whatever, many, many, many millennia ago. And you'd look at the fire, you could see the fire, but the part that warms you is the part of the light spectrum we can't see. It's called infrared and it warms your bones, it goes inside of you. And so with lasers, not that fire that all emit the same wavelength and all the waves are going up and down together, like we can start to make holograms of our body and extract information. We can also form beams in our body, particularly using using sound and direct them in different ways and create resonances and all kinds of things that really haven't been tried. seriously outside of the university because you know the top hospitals they've got their multi-million dollar imaging suite that makes 80 percent gross margin and you know three quarters of the world lacks access to this technology they don't get it they just die and like i just see it seemed like such a shame so to me it was like one laptop per child part two but for healthcare how do we democratize healthcare and it's a big goal But at One Laptop Per Child, we said, you know, we're trying to change education. It's not about the laptop. If we get half of the way there, if we get 10% of the way there, we still catalyze. And so uh, that's been my thought on open water is how do we, how do we do this? So, you know, if we fast forward five years, we also have therapeutics. It looks like we're right now in early trials, three times better than chemotherapy on brain cancer. And we've just started. We're we're growing these little brain, human brain organoids in Petri dishes and applying um, our waves versus chemo. (laughs) And we're 3x better. It's it's incredible. And so that's a death sentence. Um, Glioblastoma, the type of brain cancer. Well, I'd like, yeah, I was going to say, I'd like to drill down on that because I I have a personal experience. Both my aunt and my Mm mother-in-law died of glioblastoma as well as a, a close family friend. And you're right. When you're diagnosed, it's over. And usually you have somewhere between six to 12 months, they can operate, but they just take out some of the cells as you talked about in your life itself talk. And I think one of the things that's interesting, and it's the other reason why I'd encourage people to watch your video is the technology you were talking about is that glio cells are brittle and you can use the the waves to essentially burst those just like you uh, made the wine glass analogy. If you rub the rim of a wine glass, 
the frequency or you play a certain frequency, it can break the wine glass and not anything else. Right. And so I think what's amazing to me is that you have this technology, which four years ago when I saw, I was blown away by, and then to know that it's sort of coming to bear. And if you look at the headset, it looks a lot like what you see with the Oculus, um, you know, by metaverse, except just goes on your forehead, right? It's not a shoebox. No, it's, it's like not a, a shoebox, right? It's much smaller than the Oculus. Right. And Oculus, I happen to know, has really great stuff in the right. lab. Not right. that I can tell you yes. any detail, but it's <laughs> you can imagine it might be smaller and lighter. But, you know, they focused on, on getting the right price point, I think, first, although they didn't consult with me. So I'm just not <laughs> saying that from any secret stuff I know from Oculus. No, it's all good. I, I guess my point is, is if you think about, to your point, the MRI machine and how big and clunky and immobile it is. And the fact that you could have something, because I think a lot of people now know what this Oculus goggles look like, and it's a smaller profile than that. It's game changing. And I think not only do you have this technology, which you've developed around Glio, but when we'll talk a, in a minute about strokes, yeah, just think about the idea of like, if you could have, when you were, how old did you say you were when you first started getting sick, you were in your, a teenager? About 12, 13. Yeah. yeah. So part of the problem is, is that there are a lot of people that might have glio and they might be 12, 15, 20 years old, but you don't discover it until it goes into its rapid growth phase. And at that point, again, it's too late. Right. And so think about being able to diagnose all these things that we've never been able to diagnose because usually you wait until there's some sort of a trigger versus doing a proactive. Imagine me being able to get up every day. And just like I could take my blood pressure, I can do my MRI scan, right? Or I do it once a week or once a month. And that way, now all of a sudden, I can see all of these things that I never would have been able to see. And, you know, if the, my physician sees it, then he or she could say, wow, this is a problem and let's do something about it. And to be fair, we can't right now see the cells. We can, we can, we have a cure for it that's a therapy that has the, has the potential again we're in pre what they call preclinical we'll go into animals next and then humans and we're in discussions of the fda of how quickly we can do that and other countries and their regulatory so but the early results in the because you can now grow humanoid brains with glioblastoma in a petri dish so we have three four different types of cancers and our phase wave therapy is working better than chemotherapy, far better, like three, four, five X better, just with one exposure for two minutes at an intensity level lower than pregnant women and their fetuses have been exposed to for the last 50 years in terms of ultrasound. And so that's very a very promising early result enough where um, I'm saying, well, let's, let's put some more resource on this. This is very exciting. For sure. So we've got to go through the next steps, of course, but it's not like a drug, right? Oh, by the way, this is also helpful for Alzheimer's at a different frequency. We can grow synapses and, right. and neurons and also for mental disease, like all mental diseases are caused by all kinds of different things that happen to you. But the net result, is the neurons are misfiring. They're either firing too much or firing not enough. That's what they call rewiring. Rewiring, there's no wires in the brain. It's whether the neurons are firing where they're firing. And if they're firing too much, we resonate to stop the firing of the neurons. If they're not firing, we resonate at a different frequency to start the firing of neurons. So we're starting, we're approved to start trials for severe depression 
this year on that. Um, and it, so we're just using the same kind of headset with different software layers to do that um, in different focuses, like OCD hits you right here. So we can focus the sound right there to um, help. But in terms of imaging, we backed off on that um, during pandemic to do things that we could get to product to help save lives faster. That was our metric is how can we save lives faster? Sure, that medical imaging is way too expensive, but like there's this problem of how do you ship that product? rather than, you know, large, urgent, unmet needs or diseases that um, have no cure, et cetera. <laughs> so we focused on those and we're having really great results. We're still working. One of my investors, Vinod Kosla, he talks about a startup and you have this goal of Mount Everest, but nobody can get to Mount Everest without going to base camps for us. There's actually seven of them. And so these are some of our base camps on the way to Mount Everest. Well, that's a good distinction. And so one of the other base camps, which this impacts a ton of people and for anyone that knows or has been um, dealt with stroke, that it's yeah. time to diagnosis is really the the whole game changer. Like if it's fast, then you can be saved with little to no impact. If it's slow, then essentially you die. Right. And I hate to be that dire right. about it, but talk a little bit about sort of what you're doing and how this is impacting this very common um sort of affliction, right, or, or a sort of problem, disorder in strokes and the fact that you're able to arm uh, first responders to be able to do this faster than they've ever been able to do before. Right, yeah. Stroke is the number two killer in the world, even amid COVID, number two. Seems like one day you're fine, the next day you don't walk again. If, you do, if you're alive, you don't walk again, you don't talk again. You don't have a job anymore, especially if you've got a major stroke, a severe stroke. And what a stroke is, is relatively simple. 90% of the time, it's a clot that basically blocks the blood flow. So if the clot is in a larger vessel, think of the trunk of the tree. It's in a bigger trunk. It blocks blood and oxygen from a larger volume in your head. And so it kills more neurons. If it kills a lot of neurons, that's really bad. Yep. There's no way to bring those neurons back to life. So this is a plumbing problem. And there are drugs for a smaller stroke that you can take that that clot was soluble moments ago. It collected and the faster you put that drug in to make that soluble, the, the clot disappears. It restores blood flow. For the large clot, what's necessary right now is you, you basically string up a catheter with a piece of steel wool on it and pull the clot out because the drugs can't um, melt the larger clot. If you can do that, even for a severe stroke that right now kills or permanently severely disables the majority of the people that have it, it's called a large vessel occlusion, right? Like that big trunk in the tree, like it comes up, you've got your carotid that comes up your neck and it branches out to three major vessels. If it gets one of those, if you live, you're not going to walk, talk, et cetera, again, statistically. And so we can change that to 90% chance of no neural deficit whatsoever. If you catch it, um, and get the person to treatment within two hours. And so that means, guess what? If you um, don't feel well and somebody is, you're lucky enough, somebody calls 911, you don't go to sleep for eight hours because you don't feel well. Um, you maybe fell down, maybe you had a drink, maybe you had drugs. The, the EMT comes, doesn't know if you're drunk on drugs, fell down, had a stroke, et cetera. Their chance of getting the stroke 
is, is not even as good as a coin toss, according to multiple papers that study this. Yeah, why can't we, like for a heart attack, we put an EKG in the test, we know if it's a heart attack. Why can't we put an EKG on your head and know? Well, we can, but it doesn't tell us if there's a right, left hemisphere blood flow difference. And for that, you have to see blood flow. So great, let's measure blood flow. No technology does that. So we created a technology that measures blood flow. And we did that by making holograms on these $1 camera chips by sending infrared light. We made this really complicated laser that three years ago was the size of this room and cost a half a million dollars and now is this size. And that sends out pulsed, what they call very coherent. All the waves are really lined up, you know, like... um, like wa- like waves in a wave pool, if you right. push the side of the pool and made waves, they're very precise. And what we can look at is if anything's moving. If anything's moving, you get kind of a lower contrast hologram on the camera chip than if everything's still. Because what happens is the light scatters through your brain, but if it's ricocheting off of moving r- blood cells, that creates different patterns over time. And it gives you different um, size what they call interference fringes or waves, different size waves as imaged on the camera chip when they interfere and lower contrast. And so it turns out we can measure blood flow quite precisely and have been in tests now for over a year in hospital. And we're scaling up those trials right now and going for FDA breakthrough clearance this fall on this because it is an urgent time to diagnosis crisis on the number two killer in the world. And the fundamental issue is not being able to tell if it's right left hemisphere blood flow difference. And then we route the patient directly to, it's it, it's a relatively simple procedure. If you've ever had a catheter put in anywhere, you know, it's okay, it's going up to your brain, but it's not <laughs> drilling a hole in your skull. It It's going up through a blood vessel and pulling that thing out. And so we also route the ambulance to the right place. So only some hospitals can do this procedure. And so right now, when people get this procedure, the brain matter is the vast majority of the time already dead because it took too long to get this catheter to pull out the big blood clot, which is why they don't walk or talk again. So that's that's what we're doing on that front. And we're trying to scale that out to other countries, too, and talking to their regulatory to make sure we walk through the all the proper parts of proving it in clinic first. Well, it's it's amazing. And I guess we'll stay with your Mount Everest analogy. Um, what do the next base camps look like? And what when do you get to the top of Mount Everest? Or do you ever get to the top of Mount Everest? Well, one of them is brain-computer interface, because these devices also enable us to look at the activity in the head and, and write uh, potentially that. So one of the things we do do is talk about the implications for that. We're interested in saving your mind before we read your mind. But they're they're part and parcel to each other. The technologies we're developing and our colleagues that you could call it our competition, but there's 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 this movement forward. You hear a lot about Elon for every, you know, Elon, imagine there's a hundred companies doing the same thing. Right. Many, very arguably, with much more progress, but less PR. Um, I'm not trying to diss Elon. He's kind of amazing but um you know like there's a lot going on and then if you look in the universities we all stand on the shoulders of work that that many professors have done for a long time so i think that's coming along and one thing we do have to talk about is how we want to be 
when we're able to transcend language and share our minds with each other and what kind of rules we want around that and when and how we're going to, you know, blockchain things. And, you know, there's a lot to think about there. Um, I think it'll be like speech, um, text to speech and speech to text. Like um, if you think of the nineties, like I, I, broke my my wrist and so I couldn't I used that it was really awful and then it got good all of a sudden and I think that might dragon happen. technology I think was the original right was it dragon technology yeah, yeah yeah and I think in the drag dra- naturally speaking yes and I think in the next 10 years it's unlikely I could be wrong but if you think in the next thing the 10 to 100 years I think it's probably going to happen. I think it'll be closer to that 10, you know, closer to the 10, 20 year mark. Some people might think a hundred, but it's going to change how we interact. It'll change our communication skills. It'll change what we mean by truth. (laughs) It'll change a lot. And so it's interesting to think about how we want it to be. The country of Chile has, I think, created the first laws around it and, They've said that any brain-computer interface has to be licensed as a medical product because then it'll fall under that regulatory. Because we've just walked through these baby steps of coming onto social media where even the heads of those social media companies didn't realize the profound implications that, that, that it could have. So with that recent lesson, what do we want to do? It's coming. It's coming maybe not in our lifetimes, but in our children's lifetimes. If you're pessimistic, it'll be your grandchildren, but you know, it, it's coming and unless we want to ban it, but it's really hard to stop things for a long a while. I mean, China did with um, the cultural revolution. You, you can burn books and you can stop knowledge for a while, but people keep thinking. And so it, it, it will, I think it's inevitable. Yeah. And we do have to talk about what we want to, how we want to be. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's profound. And, uh, Brave new world for sure, right? Hopefully more good in the brave new world than not, but um, it's a lot coming at us. Uh, Hopefully we're not categorized into alpha, beta, gamma, deltas, but yeah. Right. I do want to ask you a question. And I ask uh, during the pandemic, I started asking guests this, and not that I don't want to know the answer from a lot of them, but given what you've been able to accomplish, this is more a, a bigger deal than probably with anyone else I'm asking. And that is if you had one wish what would it be? You've already had one, which is uh, getting laptops to kids affordably. The other is helping people solve these neural you know, issues and making MRI technology accessible. Um, I'm sure there are other things that you thought about in terms of what can I give to the world or maybe it's for you personally. One wish. I, I, I've always, I've done nothing but work hard my whole life. Um, one of the things in pandemic uh, is at times I did get a bit of a break and I don't know if you can have high impact without high stress. <laughs> I would love low stress, high impact, but I don't know how to do that. I wish we could solve that problem. I think if there's a person that can figure it out, you might be the person that figures this out because you've done some such amazing things. And I, I can honestly say we we are blessed to have you in the world. Um, and I know that, you know, I had Dr. James Allison on, so it's very, it feels profound to have had two people that are meaningfully changing the face of brain cancer because he's, you know, developed some breakthroughs in glio and treating it. You obviously are as well. And again, I mentioned how personal that is to me. So I am deeply grateful for people like yourselves that are making these changes in the world. Well, thanks. I mean, one thing I want to say is, um, I prepared a lot for that 
uh, when Life we itself. met at the CNN talk. And I decided for my talk, I'd want, I wanted to be able to communicate the science without using the five syllable words. So I like, I used to be a computer science, computer graphics professor when I was 24, 25 <laughs> in Australia, where you didn't need a PhD to be a professor. And I thought my arrogance was astonishing. I thought, oh, I have these images in my head. We don't have the brain computer interface yet, so I can't just dump them out. But I thought I would just hack it out in Maya. And oh my gosh, I did Maya health. So I really, really appreciate what real chemistry does. <laughs> it's just, oh my gosh, I had no idea how hard it was. Because I looked at the effects and like, I knew all the you know people that various effects were named Perlinois and Ken Perlin used to stay at my house in the late nineties. So I don't, I just, um, I was, I just thought it would be easier and it's not. And I really appreciate it because visualizing being able to explain how it works to people is very important. And so thank you for what you do because it's incredibly important to communicate technology, especially at this time where, um, you know, <laughs> People think vaccines are Bill Gates. Voodoo, yes, it's tracking them. I know. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. And I do, I do strongly encourage. And and we'll do the link. But if you just Google life itself and Mary Lou Jepson, you will find her talk. It's the first search term that comes up, and so you'll. It's a fourteen minute and thirty second talk. You did do a and great job. My animations job. aren't like real chemistry level. They're they're really rough and really crude because I'm not. As you know good what they do? The, <laughs> they do the trick. Brandon Pletch, you know, said that he was impressed with what you did. He's a leader of our. <laughs> they're rough cuts, <laughs> that. So, but they convey the idea. They definitely convey the idea, and you do do a great job at keeping it in more layman's terms, so that you know people can understand sort of what you're doing and how you're doing, and you'll hear some overlap between what we're talking about today and and what's on the video but I, I strongly recommend you taking a look um i do want to ask this really sort of deep question that i love to ask everyone and i was joking with you at the beginning that this is the one that gets gets people wrapped around the axle and that is the proverbial you're stranded on a deserted island and you can take one album with you um which album would you choose and why and this is just i love to find out how people think and sort of what you know floats their boat and um, so I'd love to hear what your choice is. I'd take the turntable with the electricity and I'd use the electricity for different things. <laughs> you can give me any album and I'd be happy. Sure. I love music, but it's hard to pick one, but honestly you'd need to play it. Um, if it's an MP3, then I'd get to have, I could probably make my own electricity. If I could use the MP3 player, I could probably hack, you know, it depends what the technology for playing the music would be. Um, I'd probably make my own instruments, you know, and uh, try to make an antenna and <laughs> get information <laughs> from what's happening. That's what I'd probably do. Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't let a lot of people get away with that. But given who you are and the way you think, I think that's the perfect answer. And it's the perfect note to end on. So Mary Lou Jepson, thank you so much. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again for doing all that you do for society. And again, I don't get to say that very often, although we do have some impressive people here. Um, this is Aaron Stroud. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.